Now these guys are soldiers, right? And what do soldiers need? Hats. Cam cam camouflage. Miss Kegel. Enemies, sir. Enemies. See these hideous, ugly freaks. These guys are the enemy, and our guys have to seek them out and vaporize them. Well, no, they're not, uh, sir. <laughs> um, don't you think that's a um a bit violent? Exactly. So don't call it violence. Call it action. Kids love action. It sells. Besides, what are you worried about? They're only toys. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Gorgonite, Andrew Raphael. You know, I think World War II was my favourite war. (laughs) That's actually a pretty great Phil Hartman. (laughs) Down those cookies! (laughs) It reminds me, he's got that kind of like camp voice to him. There's a certain uh, actor about in in American TV in like the 70s. (laughs) He sounds like the Riddler. Yeah. (laughs) From the Adam West Batman TV show. Yes. (laughs) And for our latest episode, we're at war with Joe Dante's Small Soldiers, a pint-sized war epic that asks the poignant question, what if Vietnam were in your kid's bedroom? (laughs) But is this the toy-based movie to rival Pixar's Toy Story, or do Archer and his crew deserve a lifetime in Sid's backyard? Find out after the trailer. Global Tech Defense System. In a secret lab, the world's most advanced military microprocessor has been created. But the Cold War is over. For Globotech to survive, new markets must be found. Now, all that power has been placed into the brain of a fighting machine unlike any known to man. They made it strong. They made it clever. They made it small. They made a mistake. Major Chip Hazard reporting for duty, sir. Wow, voice activated. Commandos, team pick. Town dog, so dead. Rick Bazooka, ready to spring into action. Butch Meat Hoop, prepared to go to distance. Hit Nitro, demolition. <laughs> Kip Killigan, sharp as a razor. You are the best of the best. Heartland Play Systems. I'm having trouble with the Commando Elite. Ah, it's like they're alive. Let's roll some armor. We got us a war to win. The few. We have met the enemy. He is big. He is fast. Gaia. The proud. He has revealed a weakness. Alan, please, you have to help. <laughs> Major Chip Hazard wants a war. We'll give him a war. The small. Who are you calling small? This summer. Babes at 12 o'clock. Join the commando elite. Gentlemen, those are reinforcements. Commandos, attack! No mercy! Incoming! Small soldiers. Command post to break bazooka, report. It's just a flesh wound, sir. You have to be crazy not to be scared. 
If you're a 12-year-old who loves war movies that provide commentary on the fatal effects of warfare on the natural world, or how the American military complex preferences blind obedience over individuality and education, or perhaps you just want to watch a simple kids' film about the corporate world of toy manufacturing and branding, well, Small Soldiers is the film for you, you <laughs> fucking weird kid. <laughs> Join Buzz, Woody, and the Gorgonites in their battles against plastic Tommy Lee Jones, whose special power is being able to strike existential dread into the hearts of his enemies with one horrifyingly grumpy look. <laughs> so, Andy, <laughs> small soldiers. How are you, how's your small soldier doing? Uh, well, yeah, I'm just doing, very, <laughs> doing very well, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> so this was um, one of your choices for yes. uh, the episode, so what is your experience with Toy Story? Uh, to- uh, Toy Story. Not Toy Story, <laughs> not with Toy small Story. soldiers. I imagine that's going to happen quite a lot during this episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my experience with Gremlins 3 is... Um, <laughs> is... Uh, <laughs> is uh, this is another florida holiday movie because in the 90s especially at universal studios they used to do a lot of promotion for their movies in the park they'd have like big exhibitions and um, huge promotions not as an attraction but as a little side thing they'd have it in the street or in a spare soundstage or something like that you'd have films like the flintstones had a massive one yeah and then i think the year after was uh, apollo 13 what did they do for apollo 13 oh they had everything they had sets they had behind the scenes they showed you how they did all the stuff with the um zero gravity and how they made the set cold when they had you know the frost so it's like now you can enjoy the feeling of hurtling in space towards your yeah doom. it was just like a little <laughs> exhibition really but in a way it made film promotion at least in that aspect much more tangible and yeah. bigger i mean nowadays films seem to be just chucked out at, you know like there you go uh, you know, yeah. there's not yeah, apart yeah. from the trailer there's not much in the way of fanfare, fanfare. yeah yeah whereas back then they really put a lot of resources behind any big tentpole film well trailers were just a um i mean if you look at even trailers from the, like the 90s and that they're not always great but they're just kind of like a cog in a marketing machine kind of thing that builds up hype and fanfare for a certain film yeah yeah we maybe get it for the odd films here and there but they kind of turn over so quickly now that it's um i feel like the window between getting the trailer and the film coming out is being reduced yeah more yeah. and more with every year that goes by yeah definitely and one of the last major promotional tie-ins i think the last one i can remember was maybe Van Helsing that was like the end of that <laughs> of that era but yeah one of the, the last big ones was for small soldiers which for context if you're ever in Universal Studios it they had it down the walkway where the um the Shrek 4D ride was i think at that time yeah. it was still the Alfred Hitchcock experience which i've mentioned before i was going to say if they had the Alfred Hitchcock outline and all they would have had to do was add the um, Shrek ears to it. Yeah. <laughs> and then they could completely like repurpose his silhouette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they sometimes do that with attractions where they reference the, the attraction that was there before. Uh, I know Disney yeah. do that a lot, but um, unfortunately they didn't do that with the, the How Shrek could 4D. they not use a, like they could have done a psycho gag, oh. they could have done vertigo. It's just so much there. But yeah, down this... Um, particular walkway they had this 
small soldiers promotion. And again, they had it as almost like a little exhibition. So was it big or small? <laughs> it was... <laughs> but um, yeah, that was my initial exposure to the film. And you could tell that Universal had gone all out on it, at least in this context. But I didn't go to the cinema to see this film. Yeah. I think the first time I saw this was, I think I rented it. Ah, the old days. Yeah, I think I rented it. And then not long after I got it on video and had the Mm -hmm. video and watched that for many years and then upgraded to the DVD. And then only in this last week or so, I've I've upgraded to the Blu-ray. And this is a film that I've, that's been in my life ever since. Not that I watch it regularly, but... Every now and again, I go, oh, yeah, I haven't seen Small Soldiers in a while. I'll, I'll put that on. It's like a nice security blanket. Nice, easy watch. Yeah. And yeah, and I think for me, personally, I've approached this film probably from the wrong way around because of the age I was growing up. I mean, this was a perfect film for me because I would have been 11 years old when this film came out. Yeah. So, like, perfect demographic for this film. But people who were followers of Joe Dante, who were much older than us, would have watched Gremlins first. And of course, yeah. I didn't see Gremlins until quite some time after. It was a film I was aware of, but it wasn't something I actually watched at the time. Because mm-hmm. over in the UK, at least Gremlins is... I'm not sure what it's changed now, but back then it was a 15. Yes. Because they yeah. didn't have 12 for a long time, and the, and the ratings didn't switch over when they brought 12 out. So I think I've got a DVD of it, and it's still a 15. Yeah. I didn't see it for that reason because my parents were probably a bit more strict than you than yours when it came to yeah, watching. Yeah, I, I saw like it a that. lot. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't have the context of this being a kind of Gremlins-ish film, so it's hard for me to to look at it with that kind of critical view because I do know that it is a bit derivative, especially in structure-wise of mm-hmm. that film. But yeah, it's still a film that I kind of have fun memories of and I always enjoy going back to. So yeah, that's my um, my relationship with this film. Well, we are actually then approaching the film from very, very similar perspectives because this is a film that I also grew up with. I didn't go to cinemas to see it, but we got it on VHS when it was first released and it was one that me and my brother Jack were particularly fond of and we had the video game as well on yep. playstation so it was a film that clearly they had some faith in you know they made a video game of it as well as at the time and uh, we played that quite a lot but yeah we got quite a lot of playtime out of this film but it's weird it's one of those ones where i kind of left it in my childhood and i hadn't returned to it for years and years and years and this is like the first time in decades yeah that yeah. i'm watching small soldiers again However, as to Joe Dante, yeah, I definitely had seen Gremlins and various other films. Inner Space yeah. as another one I had definitely seen before this. So I knew who Joe Dante was. I liked Joe Dante, and I was approaching this film from that perspective as well. Mm-hmm. And it certainly has a lot of hallmarks. There's a lot of you know very familiar faces for those that follow Joe Dante's work yeah, in this. Yeah. That was always comforting for me. He was, he was like, growing up, he was low-key one of my favorite filmmakers you know like yeah. joe dante everybody loves joe yeah. dante films he spoke to the uh looney tunes fan and me 
Yeah. Which is strange because this Looney Tunes film is dog shit. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not actually. It's it's not, but... It's very much a troubled production, that one. Yeah, it's not as good as a Joe Dante Looney Tunes film should be, by far. No, but uh, Joe Dante, for people growing up now, is, is not a figure that people would recognise at all, unfortunately, no. because after this film and then the uh, debacle that was Looney Tunes back in action... He kind of just disappeared. Wait, no, no, no. Didn't you see the hole in 3D? Oh, well, yeah. But the hole was still... There was a good six-year gap in between Looney Tunes back in action and the hole. Yeah. I remember the poster from the side of buses being everywhere, but the trailer making it look really cheap, and I never saw it. Have you never seen it? No. Oh, I've seen it. It's shit. Oh, no. Yeah, it's not good. It felt like one of those 3D exhibition films from IMAX, like that you would turn up and watch half an hour of. And It's like someone tried to make a really kid-friendly version of Poltergeist, but in 3D. Yeah. And that's all I can say about it. There's not much. It's very Diet Dante. It's a bit like a later John Carpenter film in that respect. Yeah. Yeah, it's not good at all. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, I do miss the, like, the calibre of filmmaking that he does normally provide. Yeah. I think this might be the an end of an era film, the last of its kind, because I can't think... I don't think there are any other films made like this which are that kind of Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante-ish, strange things going on in a small town film. Yeah. Because this is actually an Amblin film, but it's just yeah. an uncredited Amblin film. But I looked down Amblin's filmography, and after Small Soldiers you start getting much more serious fare. Yeah. And it's not until something like Super 8 that we even return yeah. to anything like this. And Super 8 is a different kind of animal because that's more... <laughs> it's like, hey, what's the next film from Amblin? Oh, well, we've got this uh, this new funny one for the kids coming out called Amistad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Schindler's <laughs> List. Schindler's List is an Amblin film, you know. Um, oh, is it? Oh, it Jesus. Is. Super 8 is approaching... It from a very different place because it's it's a nostalgia trip because it, it's not a contemporary set film. Yeah. It's riffing on a lot of what came before, whereas I feel like Small Soldiers is the last contemporary set strange things going on in a small town film. I yeah. can't think of a single other film made after that that followed that premise, that setting. Yeah, it does. It's like it's all come back around now with all the nostalgia, but like there is this like gap yeah. Where that type of film didn't exist for a while. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, at this point, we would normally move on to the context for a film, how it was made, when it was made, that type of thing. There are certain things that we can bring up, such as its relationship to Toy Story and what that means. But as to the actual making of the film, there's um, very little, really, that there is out there about the production side of things. It just seems to be a very simple production however i do have information on a lawsuit that took place there is a filmmaker called gregory p grant whose only film is a short called ode to gi joe which i did actually watch after watching small soldiers and it's just like a stop motion gi joe movie where it's like <laughs> hey all the dolls are playing when the adults are out of the room mm. and they make a mess of this kid's bedroom and then the dad walks in and goes ah look at this mess something like that <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and that's really it but apparently he pitched the idea of a movie of the same vein you know gi joe's come alive to steven spielberg 
with a completed script. They had meetings, but it didn't go any further than that. They decided to pass on the projects. And then a month later, a single month later, small soldiers started to uh, to come together. <laughs> <laughs> so, And that was taken to a lawsuit. Now, I don't know what the outcome of the lawsuit was, because unfortunately there is nothing out there regarding it. I imagine it probably didn't go as far as to start trials. Some settlements were probably made, that kind mm. of thing. But it does seem like there were some dodgy dealings involved. Mm. So... He was obviously suing them for damages and for money owed and that type of thing. So while they were waiting to go to court, Steven Spielberg's people got in contact with the uh, Gregory P. Grant's ex-wife and had her, because she has a co-credit on the script, sign over their ode to G.I. Joe concept to him so that then he had ownership of that idea regardless. (laughs) And he bought it for $20,000. Right. So, like, chump change. Yeah. And because Gregory P. Grant and his wife were divorced at that time, he was kind of cut out of that deal. Oh, dear. (laughs) He still maintained that he was taking it to court, but there is no outcome as to what happened from there. No, I imagine a a settlement of some kind. It must have been. Grant said that he could prove that his wife did nothing on the the script other than a polish, like a a grammatical punch-up kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, that's as far as I know in regards to like any production hiccups or anything that's interesting on the production side of things. All we know really is that um, the film was originally made to be a lot edgier. Mm-hmm. And midway through production, the sponsors involved with the film wanted it to be softer. And, you know, it was supposed to be for an edgy teenage audience. The kind of film that you would expect from Joe Dante, if you think about it, you know, like Gremlins has got an edge as well. But then the sponsors kind of balked at that and were like, no, we need it to be a little bit softer. I imagine they wanted it more in the Toy Story vibe, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, it was um, Hasbro, wasn't it, that they did the deal with the toys in because they worked with... Stan Winston in um, mm-hmm. designing the actual puppets slash toys and the look of all yeah. that. That's the thing that seemed to have, have changed. But he did say, you know, quite a lot of that edginess has survived. It's kind of a hybrid of the two. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like it, that decision came down while he was midway through production. Yeah. So he wasn't yeah. like able to change what they had in the can. Yeah. You can certainly see some of that in the film as well. Yeah. But that's all there is really in regards to the the making of the film. Oh, and that in regards to Stan Winston Studios, they originally intended for it to be shot with puppetry as their primary focus, but once the film was in the can, they replaced a lot of Stan Winston's work with CGI because it just worked better. I can see why they would. They got more motion and more things for the characters to do. However, it still worked with, like he said, it was still like one-third puppetry and two-thirds CGI Yeah, uh, yeah. in the final film. So there is still plenty of puppetry in there as well. I watched the little making of documentary this morning, which is very uh, very much a 90s fluff piece. But yeah, you do get the sense that Stan Winston Studios and ILM worked very well together because they had such a long-standing yeah. relationship with one another and that the work that Stan Winston had done in designing the puppets and having them in full motion gave the CGI artists a lot of reference and that it was a very well-balanced 
marriage with a lot of respect on either side. It's something you wouldn't get these days. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, yeah, because it's normally split between about like 20 different visual effects studios. Yeah. And it's like, what did you do in this film? Oh, well, I did some work on Black Panther's arm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, all of the arm work was me. And also, even if you had people doing the puppets on the set, it would be very much guaranteed that all of their work would be replaced by CGI at some point. Yeah. So it's another one of those 90s films which had a good balance between the disciplines in achieving the visual effects in the film. Mm-hmm. Because um, for a film of this age, it, it does actually hold up rather well. It does. I think it helps that they are uh, plastic as well. Yes, it does, yeah. Those words that you hear about on Corridor Crew with like ocular occlusion and all that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. All of a... Uh, they talk about the way that the uh, like one of the th- things that they had to overcome with CGI was getting the way that the light penetrates skin properly, yeah, you know yeah. that kind of thing. You don't have to worry about that with with a plastic toy, so it's um, <laughs> it looks so much better as a result, kind yeah. of thing. They really play into that. Definitely. The other interesting thing is that obviously the film is it's got four writers, of which all have had success in the family film market Mm -hmm. you had uh, ted elliott and terry rossio from aladdin who would later write many other films mainly the pirates of the caribbean films Mm -hmm. but then you've got rather interestingly adam rifkin who had the previous year written mouse hunt for dreamworks and then the other writer was gavin scott who wrote the 1997 John Goodman starring Boris film. And I think we've talked before about the odd connection between the borrowers and mouse hunt. It's almost like yeah. they're set in the same world. So it's rather interesting that they're actually credited on this film together. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah, they're all involving small things. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can imagine a fat cat's at DreamWorks like, hey, we're doing another small thing movie. <laughs> Get the small guys in. <laughs> Get the small guys in. <laughs> I don't know why they talk like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, see? Yeah. But um, the only other thing I can think of in the production of this film, because he's not credited in any way, but from the making of documentary, Steven Spielberg's in a lot of the footage. So he seems to have had a, Maybe not a hands-on yeah. role, but a very much of a uh, investment supervision role in this film. It is weird because in what research that I did for this film and what I did find out, they refer to it a lot as Steven Spielberg's Small Soldiers. Yeah. For example, even the court case was about Steven Spielberg. It wasn't about Joe Dante. It wasn't about any of the writers. It was about Steven Spielberg specifically. They seem to attribute a lot of ownership to this film afterwards to Spielberg in a way. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, Obviously, it's DreamWorks. Obviously, it's a Spielberg-owned production company. But, um, yeah, I didn't realise that he had quite a hand in this, as, um, you know, I've come to find out. Yeah, I think it's because, at the time, DreamWorks was a brand-new studio. Yeah. People growing up now might not have known, because the word DreamWorks today is just synonymous with the animation. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was a fully-fledged new studio i think it was the first yeah new studio in decades and it had a proper lot and everything and they had several divisions this is how much of a nerd i was in the 90s but i got genuinely excited when they announced that steven spielberg 
had a new production company. Yeah. I was yeah. like, ooh, DreamWorks, that sounds so promising. <laughs> They're doing video games as well. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this time it was a, a fully-fledged studio, and I think they only started releasing films maybe the year or two before. I think Mouse Hunt was the one of the very first yeah. DreamWorks films to be released. So this is very early days, and it's almost like this film is Steven Spielberg getting his ducks in a row. It's like, oh, I'd like to make a film like that again with Joe Dante for my new production company. So I think there's a lot of that going on. I think that's why they made this film at this particular time. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we haven't really talked about Gremlins very much, but it is very much reminiscent of that film. And yes, when I was a kid watching this, I had no knowledge of it being so. I mean, they do reference it as well in oh, yeah. the film itself. Because Joe Dante is definitely... I don't think it's something he's doing cynically. No, no. <laughs> and he certainly does try and play it so it has its own individual identity. Yeah. But it does stick to the Gremlins template pretty yeah. rigidly. But I imagine it's something that would have been more appealing to him because, yeah, it's sticking to that template and that structure, but it's not with Gremlins again. Because yes. you know, he probably did everything that he thought he could do with Gremlins after Gremlins 2. I mean, and that is one that we will be doing at some point. Oh, yeah. But um, it's still different enough that it would be another interesting challenge, even though, in a basic structure sense, very similar to, to Gremlins. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, let's move on to what our thoughts for the film are. So, Andy... I'll pass it over to you. This is a film that you nominated. What do you think after all these years? Has your opinion changed for Small Soldiers? Or do you still remain a a fan as ever who uses this as his comfort blanket? <laughs> yeah, I don't think my opinion on it has changed all that much. Obviously, I have to bring in that context that Gremlins gives me. Yeah. So that gives me a slightly different perspective on the film. But it still is able to plant me back to being 11 years old, 12 years old, watching this film. Yeah. Yeah, and like, again, because the visual effects hold up to a pretty good extent, and you would never be described as being a, a great film or anything like that, but it's a very fun, entertaining film, and it's got yes. a rather rich complement of elements, I would say, because it might have been criticised as being not quite as edgy and, and anarchic as some of his other films, but it still has a lot of those joe dante eccentricities right down to the fact that yeah. you have your joe dante regulars like dick miller and the two people that are in the bed that go fimple yeah that's um ron howard's dad is it something like rance howard yes that's like it that. yes and it's the old woman from gremlins as well yes. and she's in loads of joe dante films i think it's the one that's chucked out of the window by her uh, stirlift yes <laughs> <laughs> That, by the way, was one of the staple moments of my childhood growing up. Because <laughs> the first time I watched Gremlins, as a family, we watched Gremlins and we saw that part. We just kept rewinding it to watch the woman fly out the window. <laughs> and we were just crying with laughter. <laughs> yeah, you know? So, I would say, for me, that's just one element that this film is missing. It needed to chuck an old lady out of a window to her death. Yeah, yeah. That's the only thing it's lacking for me. Every film should have one scene in which an old lady dies <laughs> by being thrown from a window. I mean, there might have been something like that originally, because I know that they they had to cut a few things out to make it match that more family-friendly 
audience that they'd been tasked with. Yeah. But yeah, the fact that they have casts of other films voicing both sides of the toy groups. So you've got the Commando Elite, which are the G.I. Joe-inspired action figures, and they're voiced by, well, the majority of them are voiced by the cast members who are in the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. Now, I know the original plan was to try and get the cast of Predator to voice the Commando Elite <laughs> with Arnold Schwarzenegger voicing Chip Hazard and, yeah, all the other cast members like Shane Black. and I can see exactly which character would fit which, actually, weirdly enough. Yeah, so <laughs> that was an idea that didn't come to pass, so they um, got quite a lot of the members of the Dirty Dozen with Bruce Dern filling in for, I can't remember his name now, one of them died. Yes, yeah. Around the time of production, so they couldn't use him. So they got Bruce oh, Dern. A shame. <laughs> what a shame, you know. <laughs> yeah. One of them died, so they couldn't use him. They yeah. tried. They tried. But it was just there. It was just sad for all involved. <laughs> <laughs> just sitting in the studio with rigor mortis. <laughs> you know that uh, that scene from the day to day where they um, they have the uh, the victim of that serial killer press the button for his execution by like rigging him up full of animatronics. Yeah. <laughs> they could do it like that. Oh, <laughs> uh, ah, that was it. Richard Richard Jekyll. Yeah, who died before shooting began. So they got uh, Bruce Dern to uh, fill in that part, and then the uh, the Gorgonites, who are the um, masters of the universe analog nature loving hippies. Yeah, they are voiced by Spinal Tap, of course, with uh, Frank Langella. Which is very incredibly appropriate. <laughs> considering yeah, it feels is. right. It does. It, feels, it does. Yeah. So yeah, it's a bit of an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the to the cast, actually. Absolutely. Because uh, we've got the Gwendy dolls as well, who are voiced by um, Serna Michelle Gell and Christina Ricci. Yeah. To be honest, though, the voices are fantastic for the Gwendy dolls. Yeah. However. You cannot tell the voices apart. No, no. <laughs> like, they could have just had one of them. Yeah. You know, save himself some money. <laughs> we can't not mention, you've got the Fimples, who are Phil Hartman and Wendy Schall. Fantastic. I think, for me, they're probably a bit underused. They are, yeah. In fact, they spend a lot of the film drugged and sleeping. <laughs> yeah, or in the closet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Especially Wendy Shell. So that's kind of a shame. Both of them quite famous voice actors as well. Oh, yeah. Like um, like more known for their voice work now. But Wendy Shell as well is a Joe Dante regular. She was in a in a space. Yeah, yeah. And the Burbs. And the Burbs. Yeah. I can't forget the Burbs. Burbs. I think the other thing to mention that this is the final theatrical film from Phil Hartman. Yes. Before his yeah. rather um, horrific death. And there is a little tribute to him right at the end of the film after the credits, which I always remembered, even though I had no idea of the context of um, no. what happened. So, yeah, it kind of adds the film with a slight poignancy. Yeah, it does, because I also remember it as being when I was a kid, I was like, hey, that's Troy McClure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. And in the 90s, man, I loved Phil Hartman as well. Like, yeah. he was yeah. he was great and he was like my favorite voice on the simpsons as well like so distinctive lionel hotz troy mcclaw to the point in which i often talk about this with my wife as well but those characters lionel hotz troy mcclaw they're in the simpsons for such a short time now in comparison to how long it's been going on it's in like season 30 something 
And he's only in it up to, I think, season nine, maybe season yeah. 10. Basically all the best seasons. Of the yeah, season. yeah, all the best seasons. But that's it. Like, those yeah. two characters. And yet, those two characters still remain staples of The Simpsons, even though they haven't been in it since. No. They still remain just, like, in the zeitgeist. You know, you mentioned Troy McClure or Lionel Hutz. They know instantly who you're talking about kind of thing. Yeah. That goes to, like, the power, one, of the writing of the character, but also the performance of that character as well. Yeah. And uh, I love Phil Hartman. Yeah, he, he was great. My wife... My wife! Yeah, got me into watching Jingle All The Way a few years back, having never watched it or had any interest to in watching it because I'd heard it was so bad. But, Put the cookie down! I mean, it's still bad, but in a good way. And um, one of the highlights of that film is still Phil Hartman. Mm-hmm. Phil Hartman eating Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife's cookies. Yeah. And he's like, mm, oh, yeah. Mm, those cookies! <laughs> <laughs> Everything he does sounds like the Riddler. Yeah. But, um, yeah, just a great presence, even in a really small role. Even in a really small soldier's role. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a cameo in So I Married an Axe Murderer, and it's one of the best things in the film. He does. When they go to Alcatraz. <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> he's the um, he's the guard, isn't he? Yeah. That, that takes him on the tour. Yeah. Oh fucking hell! Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. I, I'm John Johnson, but everyone calls me Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the things I would say about small soldiers as well, just in regards to those, you've said that perhaps those characters are used not quite as well as they should have been. My opinion of the film in general, whether it's changed over the last two decades or so, closer to three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, is that old. I? Yeah, I'm still of the opinion as well that this was a film that I liked a lot, but I knew at the time like it's not a great film, but it's a solid good film. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, and I got a lot of play out of it. But uh, one of the things that. I've come to notice now is yes, there is something of a um, tonal issue. It's miss. It is missing, and I mean this genuinely. Like it is missing that kind of like Gremlins death. I think Dick Miller's character should have probably died in the truck. Yeah, yeah. When they hijacked the truck, they should have done something fun there, and uh, that way you know, like they mean business for the ending. It's just mm. missing that one element. The other thing I would say is, um, I think there are too many characters. However, I would not cut a single one of them. <laughs> it's weird. It's like you've got these uh, commandos and gorgonites, of which there's a ridiculous amount of characters there. Yeah. 10 plus or so. Then you've got the main character and his mum and dad. Then you've got the girl next door and her family, which is her mum and dad, brother, and her boyfriend. And then there is a side plot involving the toy makers, Dennis Leary, who's the head of the company. Mm. And then you got Robert Picardo. Yeah. So you've got a whole different story there. And it's like, it has got a lot going on on its plate. And it is cutting between the, them all quite often. However, I wouldn't cut a thing. It's one of those things where it's like the floor is a feature in a way. It does mean that it structurally it feels like a little bit stop-starty. But it also zips by and... Um, with these characters, because you're jumping from once, like even the toy makers, for example, David Cross and Jay Moore, and they're they're having fun. David Cross is having fun, you know. Oh yeah, none of them really feels superfluous. No, they all have a little part to play in the story. When you actually break it down on a film level, scene by scene, planning wise, it's very well thought out actually. Mm. And there's little things like that I noted: the fact that Alan's dad's toy shop one of the big 
things they make a deal out of when the toy shop gets wrecked is that Viking ship. Yeah. And that gets used again at the end of the film. Yeah, set up and pay off. Yeah, there's a lot of good old school filmmaking. Yeah. (laughs) Things that just seem to be taken for granted these days. And because of that, they don't get used enough. Mm -hmm. And that goes into all the characters. And without them, without any one of those characters, the film wouldn't work. Yeah. There'd be something missing. As an exercise in good nuts and bolts filmmaking, it's very solid. Mm -hmm. And yeah, everyone's having fun yes i mean even though it's a fluff piece it's like a 12 minute documentary you get the sense with the actors when they're being interviewed that it was a fun thing to work on yeah now here's the question that i have for you on maybe not tommy lee jones yeah well (laughs) that's the question that i have for you on that topic is do you think tommy lee jones has any idea what he's doing I think the voice works perfectly for the character. Yeah. But yeah. Tommy Lee Jones, on a personal level, do you think he gives a fuck what this film is? Or is this the equivalent for him of starring in that weird Japanese coffee advert that he did? <laughs> Where he plays an alien that likes coffee. He's like, oh, I'm just doing another one of those corporate gigs. Hmm. He's a bit of an enigma. Yeah. The mid to late 90s is uh, Tommy Lee Jones's family-friendly period. Yeah. I don't know whether it's one of those things where he had an agent at the time yeah. that thought it would be in his interest to do these kind of films. It's weird because I find, like you mentioned, he's a bit of an enigma because he does these type of films and he does them so well. But everything about his persona outside of those films tells me that these aren't the type of films that he likes to do or anything like that. Like, I don't know what mm. it is. It's just he's a grump. He's very grumpy. Yeah. And he takes his work quite seriously. And yet, his work on this is fantastic. Like, he's clearly... He's not Xanaxed out or anything. The character's got got range. There's satire. There are jokes that are really played up to and that type of thing. Many puns. Yeah, exactly. Many, many puns. And there's... There's no disdain in his voice for the work that's being done here. No, he's not on autopilot. No. He's not phoning it in. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah, he's still giving it his all. I mean, you could say the same like with Batman Forever in terms of um, Two-Face is Tommy Lee Jones isn't phoning it in there. You know? No. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's definitely not phoning it in here. And um, yeah, I, don't, I can't think of a single person he's phoning a performance in. Everyone seems to be getting along fine and having a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking of the cast and then I remember Kirsten Dunst is in this. And there are a couple of lines that I remember like that I watch this now going, oh, yeah, yeah, you couldn't say that in a, in a film these days. But, for example, like Kirsten <laughs> Dunst's 15-year-old character saying, I only date older guys. Yeah. It's like, in this day and age, yeah, that's a red flag right there. <laughs> you know? it's like, I only date older guys that I've met on the internet in various chat rooms. <laughs> yeah. And the other one is um, when the Commandos first find the Gwendy dolls and yeah. one of them says fully posable <laughs> I was like what <laughs> which also begs the question do these commandos have dicks oh yeah have you got a little plastic dick down there dude <laughs> <laughs> well they <laughs> they're very sophisticated so maybe <laughs> yeah and they just keep going and going and going and going <laughs> But yeah, there are a couple of lines like that in the film that made me go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is certainly a product of its day. Getting a request a three-day pass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I like about it as well, quite a lot, is um, 
that's what you get from Joe Dante. It's got satire. It's got a message. It's got several messages and themes going mm. on. You know, it does have some complexity to it, but it never feels like it's hitting you over the head with that or that it derails no. the film or becomes about that. It does have this idea that the commandos, they do not think, they can't learn. They are not individuals, really, although they do feel like they're individual characters, but they they are made to be a drone culture. And then you have the Gorgonites themselves, who are these like crazy creative individuals. They're nature-loving, they value education, they learn, they build, that type of thing. Mm. And they are not made to fight. It has all of that kind of commentary, but it's in this like little six-inch toy package. It's great. <laughs> like you say, though, it never becomes preachy. It never becomes preachy about that. It still remembers that it's got to be about toys fighting. <laughs> Yeah. It's only missing a Robin Williams pattern speech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find those, the Gorgonite characters, are very um, endearing. They really are. Especially Archer. It's like, oh, give him a cuddle. Yeah, you, you want know? to, right? I keep <laughs> out, kept up, I was watching it, I was like, come on, kid, give him a cuddle. <laughs> yeah, give him a hug. There's a wonderful um, innocence in uh, Frank Langella's portrayal of that yeah. character as well. It doesn't really get talked about enough, but there's a really nice underlying theme of artificial intelligence and self-awareness Yes, yeah. in the piece. Because the whole premise is the fact that they stuck munitions chips into toys. And when Robert Picardo, who's yeah, another Joe Dante regular, describes what the chip can do, you know, it's a learning computer. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's about them becoming self-aware and finding Gorgon and finding out about the world around them and their limitations as toys and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's really well done. But yes, there's so many like little... There's the Globotech advert at the start, which is very reminiscent of the Terminator 2 3D Cyberdyne advert yeah, yeah. that was done for that ride. It's very similar indeed. And even the... Um, the opening credits scene where the toys are being built mm -hmm. feels very... That's very Terminator 2. It's that Terminator 2 teaser, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, there's a couple of little in-references to that. It even goes down to the xenophobia and with the the mindless pursuit of the commandos for the Gorgonites yeah. without any questioning. And at the end, when they're having the fight on the power line, when it's like let's see what your guts are made of. And it said it's wires and metal, same as yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other's commercialism as well. Yes, which... yeah. Exactly like, I mean, even with like, the Gorgonites being completely overlooked in an instance like that because kids don't want to learn. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. But yeah, we've spoken about this in the episode and I really want to get into it as one of the reasons why I really like this film as well, growing up. Is that I do feel that one of the issues for me slightly is that it doesn't go far enough. It is slightly toned down in terms of its edginess. However, it still manages to get quite grewy and violent. Yeah. But in a way that's only really reserved for the toys. I like how Dante and Stan Winston Studios and ILM found ways to make the toys deaths especially all the commandos feel yeah like for example there's that moment where they take apart one of their fallen soldiers one of their fallen comrades to pass yeah, the yeah. microchip over to the gwendy dolls and they like take his face off 
and it's like yeah, yeah all the other ones are like oh, oh i think i'm gonna be sick but yeah. it's filmed in such a way that it looks violent and grewy but it's just toys you know yeah i like how they still manage to communicate that on that level and still make it feel a bit icky even though you're just looking at plastic dolls essentially and that it works mm. on that level like I, that's where i can see that the edginess kind of like really did work for this film and i really love chip hazard at the end with his like bloodshot eye and scarred face you know it's all a very action movie tropey but he looks great and it looks like it's a genuine scar that type of thing it, mm. it's really clever how they did that yeah it's it's kind of um a gateway film yeah yeah i would say that it does have edginess to it definitely and like you know the stuff with the gwendy dolls is terrifying <laughs> yes that's my favorite scene in the film the gwendy dolls yeah it's very satisfying when she starts um, bashing them with the golf club. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it really is. My favorite one is the "Did I overplug my eyebrows?" and it's just 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 <laughs> yeah. a, a pair of eyes on a neck. Oh, it's a very satisfying film. I love the bit where um, Jay Moore's character gets punched. Oh yeah, that's great. He's heading for that. It's coming the whole film. Yeah, I'm gratified now. <laughs> <laughs> is that where you came? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm gratified now. That was the longest wank of my life. <laughs> but yeah, I think for me, it's different enough from Gremlins because it has, um, obviously the Gremlins themselves have very individual personalities, but yeah. nobody really speaks. They don't have that kind of level of interaction no. that these characters do. But then also, yeah, I love the... Um, commandos making their own vehicles and weapons and stuff out of the things in the garage yeah just very inventive and creative and the designs as well yeah i like how there's a simplicity to the commandos and they do feel like much of a muchness in many regards there are of different varying sizes you can see they look like part of the same line whereas the gorgonites on the other hand are these like crazy creative alien looking individuals different colors different you know yeah i am 100 percent team gorgonite with this film as well like they are the fucking the guys <laughs> yeah and of course you've got your uh your daffy duck analog yeah of course you have with uh insaniac insaniac that's it michael mckean doing that one. Oh, is, is that michael mckean doing insaniac that one's michael mckean i think uh, based on the footage that they took from the um from the making of documentary it sounded like he did the voice quite fast but then they sped, sped it up, up a little bit to make it a little bit more high-pitched to give you that kind of daffy duckness to it there's something so endearing about those characters and when they go off in the boat at the end you really do hope that they find what they're looking for yeah i kind <laughs> of want to see just the movie that is the gorgonites in the wild you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> But yeah, you kind of do hope that they find their little home for themselves. Yeah. I've got to ask as well, just with the whole like uh, toy element and you being the big Pixar Disney nerd that you are, is there any overlap between this film and Toy Story? Because I know that like in terms of the critical reception, it has come to be known as that other toy film from the same time. Yeah. But even though this isn't specifically a Katzenberg DreamWorks production, it's Spielberg creatively held, is there any overlap there? Or was there any note of perhaps some corporate espionage? Mm, There's probably to a certain extent. 
it's a more edgy film than Toy Story, but the original Toy Story does have its edginess to it. Yeah, but then again, it's that was the whole DreamWorks thing was like we want to be the edgier version of X. For example, we did it with our very first episode that we recommend that nobody listens to with yeah. ants and a bug's life. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't listen to that. Don't one. listen to that. <laughs> no, um, it just plays into that love of toys especially this type of toy that was around at the time. I think the the 80s and 90s were where action figures and vehicles were at their zenith. Yeah. And after that time, it never really took to those heights again. I think maybe the early 2000s, but then after that, I think after the um, Star Wars prequels, I think it kind of died a death after that. Yeah. I saw a, a thing for a, um, a Batman action figure vehicle playset, a contemporary one. And um, it looks shit. Yeah, they do. Like, it looked really bare bones. Toys these days do look terrible. Like They don't put any effort into accessories and detail and yeah. all that kind of stuff and cool things for them to do. They're just very, very bare bones. I think the market moved on to um, young adults and adults with the whole like kind of collectible models, those kind of action figures. Yeah. It's moved yeah. in that direction now because part of the reason is what happened during the 80s, they used to make toys about all sorts of films. So you could market like Freddy Krueger dolls to kids and that kind of thing, Terminator toys coming yeah. out for kids, all that kind of thing happened. And then laws were introduced to stop people from being able to do that in the late 80s, early 90s. And that kind of limited what toy manufacturers could do with that market. And so it's almost like that audience that grew up with that has just moved into kind of collecting them, the more kind of high-end collectibles as adults kind of thing. And it had such a strange negative effect on film that because, one, it meant that films had to be a lot more smoothed down to be able to market toys to kids. So a lot of films were made with this whole, well, we have to be PG-13 because that opens us up to being able to make all these dolls and whatnot for the kids and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And on the other hand as well, it also left this huge gap in the market that couldn't be filled by anything else. You know, it's like there used to be a lot more of a range for kids than there is now. Uh, But that's just the nature of the beast, I guess. Mm. The toys for this film were done by Hasbro and... um, they were something of a success at the time. Apparently, they did the the toy campaign for this film made more money than the film. Oh, so that's saying something. I don't really have any strong memories of the small soldiers' toys. I don't. I have no memory at all for them. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say. I mean, it's a film about toys, but I wouldn't say it was a glorified toy commercial. Yeah, in fact, it spends a lot of time critiquing the whole toy manufacturing and designing business as well. So, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's probably a good time to move on to the stats and facts, actually. Let's have a look at how this film did when it was originally released. So in regards to the um, critical side of things, the Rotten Tomatoes score is 49% for the critics. So that's a Rotten rating. However, the average rating is fresh at 6.2 out of 10, which is why it's always best to, to look at these things before you uh, mm. <laughs> make an opinion just based on the percentage alone. Which I think is way too low for this type of film. It's always difficult with these kind of films because there were less reviewers around at the time. Yes, and this is based on 45 reviews, of which it's practically split down the middle. And the consensus says that Small Soldiers has plenty of visual razzle-dazzle, 
but the rote story proves disappointingly deficient in director Joe Dante's trademark anarchic spirit. And, I mean, I disagree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely a more family-friendly Joe Dante Yeah, film. but what's wrong with that? I still feel it's got quite a bit of bite to yeah, it. Yeah, I do. Kid gets shot in the leg with pins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Gwendy dolls nearly kill people. They set yeah. a boy on fire. Yeah, they've got like razor blades attached to their arms yeah. and stuff like that. There's so one point in which like... one of them attempts to kill the boy by stabbing him in the throat. Yeah. It's got plenty of edge. It's Like I say, it's just missing a couple of funny deaths. <laughs> and that sounds horrible to say, but when you see Gremlins, you kind of know exactly the tone I mean. As I say, yeah. it needs an old lady being launched out of a window. <laughs> um... And for the review, we've obviously gone to Roger Ebert, who gave this film a 2.5 out of 4 rating. And in his summary of the film, he says, What bothered me most about Small Soldiers is that it didn't tell me where to stand, what attitude to adopt. In movies for adults, I like this quality. But here is a movie being sold to kids with a lot of toy tie-ins and ads on the children's TV channels. Below a certain age, they like to know what they can count on. When Barbie clones are being sliced and diced by a lawnmower, are they going to understand the satirical purpose? Roy Rogers died the other day, and that reminded me of how gentle and innocent his movies were. Sure, we called them the shoot-em-ups, but Roy spent more time singing than shooting. Kids didn't leave the theatre in a state of shock. Now they go to a kiddie movie... And there are scenes where toy characters are disemboweled and vivisected and body parts crawl around the street, separated from one another. Then there are other scenes that are perfectly innocent. We get two movies for the price of one. The nice movie would have been enough. I mean, in a way, Roger Ebert is like, How, this film has too much edge. Yeah. That's such a weird review. Like, the whole Roy Rogers thing. I think it's because he's a, a veteran film reviewer. Yeah. And I think there was definitely a period of adjustment to the whole PG-13 thing. Yeah, They were so used to G-rated movies and R-rated movies mm -hmm. that the thing in between, they couldn't quite get their heads around. And it seems to be a running theme with Roger Ebert. Yeah, it's um, it's something I've always noted about his reviews, especially during like the 80s and that, when it came to films like John Carpenter, and it came to films with violence portrayed in them. But there's something that he refuses to take on board, I think, as a writer, and that is that kids like violence. And, mm. yeah, that sounds like a shocking statement to make. There's a really good quote at the beginning of the film that Dennis Leary makes when he says, don't call it violence, call it action. Kids love action. Yeah, he's right. <laughs> I grew up watching, like I've mentioned before, Terminator, Aliens, all this kind of stuff. I mean, there's more to it. I like character. I like blah, blah, blah. You know, I like story. I like the ideas involved. But also, one of the things that I was looking to get from those films, like Total Recall as well, for example, was Paul Verhoeven's slice of ultraviolence. I expected to mm. see that. I knew what I was watching wasn't real, and it mm. didn't warp my brain or anything like that. I grew up watching Evil Dead. And I think there are kids out there that do grow up watching that, that do grow up being entertained by that, that do grow up knowing it isn't real and there's nothing wrong with enjoying a bit of make-believe. And why shouldn't those kids be able to watch a film like Small Soldiers where the dolls in their room are tortured and killed and dismembered in the street and all that kind of thing? Nobody's getting mm. hurt. It's a bit of fun. 
you know? Sorry, yeah. that probably makes me sound like a serial killer. I didn't kill any of the cats. <laughs> they just went missing. <laughs> but no, I, like, that's yeah. my opinion of that. And Nino, Nino, <laughs> Nino. <laughs> and I think as well, like, even when it comes to that side of things, this film, it has fun with that. And it knows there are kids out there that love that kind of stuff. But it does have its yeah. message that, you know, you can enjoy that. And like, because even the Gorgonites end up fighting in the end, they end up taking yeah. the battle. And it's like fighting for what they love. I think that's the thing I like as well, with the fact that they uh, they were programmed to think that they couldn't fight and what they did best was hide. But when they actually go out and fight, they actually uh, outmatch the commandos quite easily. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when they're on one-on-one, because they have all their own individual skills and looks, whereas the commandos are all the same. Mm-hmm. The Gorgonites just trample all over them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they've got a fucking Tasmanian <laughs> devil. Yeah, <laughs> and they have a guy with a rock for a hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have an army. Well, we have a guy who has a rock for a hand, and he's going to beat your ass <laughs> sexually. But mm. I would disagree with Roger Ebert there, and I, I've kind of always disagreed with his stance on that type of thing as well. I always remember that the violence side of things was one of the reasons that they both gave John Carpenter's The Thing the big thumbs down. Yeah. Yeah, I've never really um, fallen in line with that way of thinking. And I don't mean to sound like the Dennis Leary character in this film, but I want to sound more like the Joe Dante director, you know, where mm. it's like kids watch Gremlins as well. Of course they did. But yeah, in regards to the box office side of things, I expected that this would have a somewhat turgid box office. I thought it failed. I don't know why I thought it failed, mm. but I thought it was a huge a huge bomb, and it wasn't quite, actually. So it had a budget of $40 million, and it opened to number three at the uh, domestic box office, the American box office for the first weekend. And that was with $14 million it opened to on that first weekend. Uh, Just to give you some films that it opened up against, number one was Lethal Weapon 4. Number two was (laughs) Armageddon, then Small Soldiers. Number four was Dr. Doolittle. Number five was Milan. Number six was Madeline. Number seven was The X-Files. Number eight was Out of Sight. Number nine was Six Days, Seven Nights. And number ten was The Truman Show. So that is a strong, strong top ten. I mean, talking of uh, Lethal Weapon, the street that features in Small Soldiers is part of the Warner Brothers lot. Yes. And uh, it's exactly the same street that uh, Lethal Weapon. Yep, exactly the same street. I knew it was. Different Different houses, but the same street. So, yeah, it's been featured on many, many films, but uh, I think probably the most famous is Lethal Weapon. I think even young Sheldon still uses that street. (laughs) I'm glad it's still getting some use. Oh, yeah. As again, just a reminder, the film had a $40 million budget. It opened to $14 million in a very packed opening weekend. But it still went on to make $54 million in America. So it more than doubled its opening weekend, actually more than tripled it which is really good for word of mouth. It tells you that those people that saw it came back or told others to go see it. Yeah. And overall, at the worldwide box office, the film actually went on to make $87.5 million worldwide, nearly $90 which is, um, again, I thought this film bombed, and the opinion seemed to be that it did. But, you know, when you factor in toy tie-ins and that type of thing, as you mentioned, you know, the toys sold more. I just think this film actually probably went on to make a little bit of a tidy profit. You know, (laughs) it's one of those ones. Uh, So 
in inflation, because I always like to go back to this now, because I think I feel it's very important in these days of inflation. I 100% do think it. I um, agree. $88 million in 1998 is now worth $160 million. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're basically doubling. Yes. Almost. So, yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. And also you have to take into context that advertising for these kind of movies wasn't as well invested into. I mean, probably a bit more than, say, films from the 80s were, but you're not talking double the budget or anything like that. So I would say this is probably a modest success. Yeah, I think it seems that way from what I've been able to find about it. So that's actually something of a happy surprise Mm. that it's actually turned into something of a modest success because I do think the film deserves it. As I say, maybe it's nostalgia speaking, I don't think so, but this was a film I grew up with as well as yourself. And um, yeah, I was quite pleasantly surprised to see that it actually did okay. Didn't set the world on fire, but it did okay. It's one of those films that's just, I think, for a lot of people to slip by the wayside. And I feel it's been very unfairly criticised when it's doing a lot of good things. Mm -hmm. And it's got a, a bite, both satirical and in its edgy humour yeah. and slight violence. It's got complexity. Yeah, it's a proper movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like I say, the most I can criticise it for is perhaps doing a little bit too much. But even so, it does those bits so well that I wouldn't even know where to begin with cutting out. So, I mean, in regards to summary, is this something that you would recommend then to our audiences? It sounds absolutely that you would. Oh, definitely as well. And I think because... Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. I mean, yeah, I could say it's a bit overstuffed, but I'd rather a film be like that than have not much going on. Yeah, too thin. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Like, genuine fun Yeah, <laughs> as well. And it does have, yeah, so it has messages. It's not batting you over the head. It's well-balanced in that regard. Yeah, yeah I think it's a, a really fun film to watch, whether you're a, a kid or whether you're an adult, actually. Yeah. It kind of serves both audiences i think i agree i mean it's not quite top tier joe dante but it's certainly no. at the top of like second tier joe dante and you have to factor in that slight derivativeness to gremlins because even structurally it has yeah. that kind of has the false ending yes for a yes start. exactly yeah but i can forgive those because they, they are very it doesn't scream at you no 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 this is a it doesn't no. knock off gremlins it, it doesn't it doesn't do that at all so I think it can just be enjoyed for its own sake. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend this one. Yeah, me too. It's definitely a one to recommend, and I'll certainly be watching it with my kids soon as well. I think they're going to love it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's all we have time for on the latest episode of Popcorn Digest. If you join us next time, we're actually going to be plugging in once more to The Matrix. As you may remember, we did review the previous sequels as part of our Best Forgotten Movies episodes however we'll now be taking on the matrix resurrections from all the way back in 2021 (laughs) do you remember that time when we could barely breathe Uh, (laughs) 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 so yes if you join us next time we'll be taking on the matrix resurrections but until then i've been gareth and world war ii it's still my favorite war (laughs) (laughs) and thank you for listening (laughs) 